In early 1971, both Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, let me segue from back to school Sunday to boxing, if, if you would allow me to do that. Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier both had legitimate claims to the boxing title of world heavyweight champion. Muhammad Ali had won the title from Sonny Liston in 1964 and had successfully defended it until he was stripped of the title by boxing authorities in 1967 when he refused to enter the armed forces. In his absence, Joe Frazier, the undefeated Joe Frazier, had won two championships by knockouts and he was recognized by boxing authorities as the world champion. So there was a lot of hype and a lot of anticipation, and maybe you remember it if you were around in those days, when it was decided that these two would fight for the heavyweight title on March the 8th, 1971 at Madison Square Garden in New York. The fight was billed as the fight of the century. Ringside seats were $150, and maybe that doesn't seem like a lot to you, but in today's money... That would be about $928 per ticket. That's a lot of money to me to go watch a fight. Around, get this, 300 million people all over the globe watched this on closed circuit TV and Madison Square Garden that night was packed with a sellout crowd of 20,455. If you were around in those days, you might have predicted Muhammad Ali to win that fight. He was fast and nimble for his size. He, as he liked to say, could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. And he had dominated most of his opponents to the point that he could predict the round when he would knock them out, and he was often correct. But in the fight before this one, Muhammad Ali had struggled through 15 long rounds with Oscar uh, Bonavina of Argentina. And so he showed a little bit of weakness so if you took that into consideration, maybe you, you would pick old fighting Joe Frazier to win this fight. He had a mean left hook and he was downright ferocious in the ring. But he had a bout with hypertension shortly before the fight. However, he looked when the time of the fight arrived to be in tip-top shape. So who's it going to be? The great Muhammad Ali or fighting Joe Frazier? After 15 rounds, it was Frazier who was declared to be the winner by unanimous decision, giving Muhammad Ali his first professional loss. This fight, it was actually the first in a trilogy. The two would spar again in 1974. That was called Super Fight 2. And in 1975, which was called Thrilla in Manila, maybe my favorite name of the three fights, both of those matches were won by Muhammad Ali, but they never lived up to the anticipation and the hype of the fight of the century that was won by fighting Joe Frazier. This morning, we are looking at a fight that is even more legendary and certainly more important and consequential than this one, far more. It's not the fight of the century that we're looking at. We might even call the fight that we are looking at the fight of the ages. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. And I would invite you to turn there with me. Grab a Bible, grab your phone, get to the Bible app, open up God's Word to Matthew chapter 4. This is where we will be all morning long. And in fact, this morning we are starting 
a brief series, a mini-series on the Gospel of Matthew, because you will be reading in Matthew for the next several weeks. And so for the next four weeks counting today, I will pick a text from the previous week's reading from the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll dig into that together. So we're going to have sermons for the next month or so from the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, what we're looking at this morning, features the first battle in this fight that I'm talking about between Jesus Christ and the devil. So far in the Gospel of Matthew, let me just give you a quick rundown. We began with His birth. The birth of the Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. And the circumstances surrounding His birth. And then we move from that into the ministry of John the Baptist. Who prepares the way, who paves the way for Jesus to arrive and to begin His ministry. John the Baptist, that great wilderness preacher who was also a blood relative of Jesus Christ. And then we read about in Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus. When He goes to be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And John says, you come to me for baptizing? You're the one who should be baptizing me, not the other way around. But Jesus says, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. And as you may remember, when Jesus was baptized, when He came up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended like a dove. And and what that looked like, I don't fully know. But also, in that moment, a voice boomed down from heaven, the voice of God the Father saying about Jesus, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And from this moment, from this account, we move into the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. This battle between Christ and Satan. And what happens in Matthew chapter 4 is this. Satan, the evil one, the devil, whatever you want to call him, is trying to sabotage the ministry of Jesus even before it begins. He's trying to derail the whole project even before it gets off the ground. So let's read about this together starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So one of my initial questions in reading this text in studying for this sermon, is why did the Spirit send him to be tempted? Why after the beginning, the grand beginning of his ministry at his baptism, I mean, things were just heating up, things were just getting started, things were just getting exciting, Jesus is about to go and proclaim the coming kingdom of God, but before that, he is sent out into the wilderness, out into the desert, to be tempted By the devil, by Satan. Why is that? Well, a couple reasons I want to share with you. First of all, Jesus came to face down the devil. He came to go toe-to-toe with the devil and win. He came to defeat the evil one. And so right off the bat, right as Jesus' ministry is beginning, we see that this is a battle royale between Jesus Christ, the powerful Son of God, and the evil one, Satan, the devil. We see from this account, that this is the purpose that Jesus came to fulfill, to dethrone the devil. And that's seen in vivid language and, and, and in a really clear way in Matthew chapter 4. But I think there's another reason here. Why 
in this account, right after the baptism of Jesus, he's sent into the wilderness to be tempted, sent by the Spirit of God. I think it shows us that that's just what happens to us when we're baptized. Jesus' baptism sort of inaugurates his ministry. It kicks things off. It is the start of his good work on earth. And your baptism starts your journey with Jesus. It starts your life with the Lord. And just as Jesus is sort of cast into this season of testing and temptation, so when you are baptized, when you make a firm commitment to Christ, so you are cast in, out into the world, out into the dominion, the domain of Satan. You are cast out into the world where you go toe-to-toe with Satan every day, where you battle against the devil every day. That's just the way that it is. And you should know, and you probably already do know, that when you take a stand for Jesus Christ, that when you take, stake out a place on his side of the battle line, that's when Satan kicks his attack into overdrive. That's when he really ramps things up against you. Not when you're weak, but when you're strong. And when you say, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I want to fight on his side. That, that is threatening to Satan. And he will stop at nothing to drag you back over to the dark side, to his side. I believe that the devil is real. Do you? Jesus believed that the devil was real. The Scriptures believe that the devil is real. And I'm not talking about the version with the red cape and the horns and the pitchfork. I'm talking about this evil spiritual being who is hell-bent on destroying you and your soul and in dragging you away from God into a world of death and destruction for all eternity. He's real. He's fierce. His goal is your destruction. And we've got to be on the lookout for Him. And it's when we firmly take a stand for Christ that He really, well, He ups His game against us. It seems to be what's happening here. Jesus has been baptized. It's this glorious moment where the Spirit descends, where the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit immediately leads him out into this really difficult season of testing and temptation. It's no different for us. When we stake out our claim with Christ and we're baptized into Christ, that's when it gets hard because Satan knows that we're on Christ's side. He doesn't like that. He feels threatened by that. So Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let's keep reading in verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This has got to be in the running for the greatest understatement in the whole Bible. After going without food for 40 nights, the Bible says he was hungry. Oh, do you think? Sometimes the Bible can be amusing in how spare it is in its descriptions of things. Of course, Jesus was hungry after 40 days and 40 nights with nothing to eat. He's starved. He's famished. Now, what you should know about Matthew is that 
he is writing primarily to Jewish believers, to Jewish Christians. And it's evident, if you read his gospel, that he is, is trying to establish that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the hope and anticipation of his people, of God's people in the Old Testament, the Jews. He is all the time saying, this happened in order to fulfill this prophecy. Have you noticed this when you read Matthew? This happened in order to bring this about. Jesus, uh, Matthew wants to show how Jesus has come and, and he, is, he is the fulfillment of all that they have been waiting on in the Old Testament. And so, when a Jewish believer is reading this account and when he or she comes to verse 2, there are some stories from the past that this would immediately call to mind reading this about how Jesus was out in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. First of all, a Jewish believer would think about Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah, who in 1 Kings chapter 19 ran away from Jezebel, the evil King Ahab's wife, after she threatened his life. And he runs away scared. And the angels of God minister to him and they feed him out in the desert and he subsists for 40 days and 40 nights on just one meal. And so a Jewish believer reading this about Jesus being out in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, he or she would think about Elijah. A Jewish believer would also think about the people of Israel who were out in the wilderness not 40 days, but 40 years because of their rebellion, because of their unwillingness to place their faith in God. God sent them out into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted. And so a Jewish believer would think about that. But most especially, what Matthew wants us to think about, what he's trying to call to our minds, is not primarily Elijah or the people of Israel. We've got to go all the way back to Adam. To Adam, the first ever human, the first human man, who was also tempted directly by the great enemy of God, by Satan all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Let's keep reading in Matthew 4, starting at verse 3. And the tempter, as he came to Adam, then in the form of a snake, now in maybe human form, I don't know, the tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus said, It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Matthew has just established the fact, the very obvious fact. Jesus is hungry because he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He's been without any nourishment, without any food for this great amount of time, for, for a time that spans over a month. And Satan comes along, and what is the first temptation that he throws Jesus' way? Jesus, why don't you turn those stones to bread? Satan hits Jesus where it hurts. He hits him in the stomach. This would have been very tempting to Jesus because he's hungry. Can you even imagine how hungry you would be having gone without food for 40 days? For some of you, this would be tempting to you as we sit here this morning and you had a bowl of Cheerios at 8.30 
And you're already thinking, when is this guy going to hush so I can go to lunch and feed my belly? You had breakfast. Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's famished. And Satan comes along and very deviously says, you know, Jesus, you could kill two birds with one stone here. Did you hear what he said? If you're the son of God, why don't you prove it? Why don't you turn those rocks into piping hot Fresh out of the oven, loaves of bread. Then you can feed your belly, because I know you're hungry. And you can also prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you're the Son of God. Satan comes in, and he knows where Jesus is weak. And he exploits his weakness. And he still does the same thing today. He's a master at it. He knows what trips you up. He knows where you're weak. And he, that, that's where he's going to send his arrows every single time he comes calling. Every time he's on the attack. You know where he's going to hit you. Where you're weak. Where you falter. Whatever gets you tripped up. That's, that's what that's where he's going to that's where he's going to get you. He specializes in this. And that's what happens here. He knows where Jesus is weak in this moment. Jesus is famished, he's hungry, and that is the first temptation that Satan lobs at him. Why don't you turn those rocks into bread? He exploits the weakness of Jesus, and he exploits our weaknesses too. We must be on guard against him. But notice Jesus' response. He's come armed with the word of God. He says, Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, which interestingly comes from Deuteronomy, a passage about the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness. Deuteronomy says God sent them 40 years in the wilderness to teach them that they needed to be sustained upon more than just bread, physical bread, but by the very word of God and Jesus retrieves this scripture from his heart, from his arsenal, and he lobs it back at Satan. And we need to remember the great lesson from this is the most powerful weapon in our arsenal to face the evil one is the word of God. As Paul calls it, the sword of the spirit. You wouldn't go into an ancient battle without being armed with your sword. And you dare not go into battle against the evil one, battle against Satan without being armed by the sword of the Spirit, the very Word of God. Jesus comes armed with the Word. Do we go into battle each and every day against the evil one armed with the Word? Maybe we should back up from that and ask ourselves, do we know the Word as Jesus knew the Word? Are we able to retrieve the powerful Word of God from our minds and our hearts when we face the evil one. Jesus was able to snap right back at Satan with God's word. Are we able to do that? Are we able to lean on the promises of God's word because of our knowledge of God's word? Or or do we need to brush up a bit on our knowledge of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, our greatest weapon in battling against Satan? So Jesus deftly handles the first temptation that Satan sends his way. But let's keep reading, starting at verse 5. Then... The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest corner of the temple. Probably, most scholars think, the southeast corner 
the top of which came up about 300 feet from the bottom below. A fall from there would bring about certain death. And Satan takes Jesus up to the corner of the temple and he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan is quoting scripture here. Do you notice that? Satan has said, hey, two can play at this game. Jesus quoted scripture to me. I'll quote it back at him. Why don't you go to the top of the temple, throw yourself down. Angels will come and rescue you. They will bear you up and all will see that you are the powerful son of God. And Jesus again said to him, verse 7, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, number 3, verse 8. Temptation number 3. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Which is a lie. Satan wields a lot of influence in this world, but God is ultimately in charge. This is my Father's world. This is God's domain. And you have no ability to give me power over the nations of the world. I've already got it, Jesus could have said. What we should see from these latter two temptations is that Satan is not just trying to tempt Jesus to sin. He most certainly is. He's not just trying to get Jesus to disobey God. It's more than that. He's trying to divert Jesus from the kind of Savior that Jesus intends to be, that Jesus came to be. A selfless, servant, sacrificial Savior. Satan is trying to get Jesus to become a self-promoting, selfish Savior. One who's concerned not about sacrifice, not about humility, but about power and pride. And notice how deceptive Satan is here. In his use of Scripture, Satan uses Scripture against Jesus. Satan tries to distort and twist and manipulate the very words of God in order to go against Jesus. It's no surprise that Satan would be tricky. He was called back in Genesis chapter 3, crafty when he came in the form of a serpent. And in John chapter 8, verse 44, he's not only called by Jesus a liar, Jesus says he's the father of all lies. Anytime you see a lie, you know where it came from. He is the source of all lying, of all deception. Satan's lure often seems like God's will. I mean, look at what he does here with Jesus. He says, I know, Jesus, that you came to exercise dominion over the world. And power. And so I am giving you an opportunity to do that. And you can do that now without all the suffering that comes later at the cross. You can sidestep that. You can, you know, avoid that and just set up your throne now. Why don't you just cast yourself off the temple? The angels will come and rescue you. Everyone will see that you're the powerful son of God. And while you're at it, just bow down to me and I'll give you rule over all the nations of the earth. Maybe that seems a little bit like God's will because Jesus did come to prove His authority and His power, but not in this way. And Satan is still deceptive like that with us today. He's the father of all lies. He is so crafty and so tricky and he can make evil seem like good. And he can make his will seem like God's will. And it requires us to be discerning 
and to trust in God's word and God's will and to just be ever so careful because he is so tricky and crafty in his schemes to take us down. May we not be fooled. Jesus wasn't fooled. Listen to Jesus' final response in verse 10. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. A version of the first commandment here. Jesus says, Be gone, Satan. And where Adam faltered, Jesus triumphs. Where Adam fell, Jesus wins. Jesus is the new Adam. As Paul tells us, this allows Paul to say, Jesus is the second Adam. He is the firstborn of a new humanity. Through Adam came sin and death, but through Jesus comes life and salvation. And Jesus here in Matthew chapter 4, He wins the first round of the fight of the ages. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 11, I like to think of Jesus in the corner of the ring here. He's being cared for by the angels, ministered to by the servants of God. Yes, He's bruised and He's battered and it was a tough fight, but He's victorious. And he departs the wilderness, not like Adam who left the garden in defeat. But he leaves in triumph. And he'll win again at the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says at the cross, Jesus disarms the evil powers and forces. And he will win once and for all on the last day. In Revelation chapter 20, we're told that Satan and his forces will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. Jesus has an undefeated record against the devil. Jesus has dethroned the devil. And because he triumphs over Satan, so can we. So can we. Jesus, did you notice this here? Jesus told Satan to leave. He said, be gone, Satan. And in verse 11, he left. And did you know? That that same power, that same ability, that same authority is available to us through Christ. Now, I'm not just making this up. And this is not just my idea from this text. We are told this elsewhere in the New Testament. In James chapter 4, verse 7, James says, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will run from you. You can say, be gone, Satan, and it will work. You ever tell Satan just to get lost? Not a lot of us talk to Satan. It maybe makes us uncomfortable. Maybe it seems too charismatic. But I don't see a problem in talking to Satan. I'm, I mean talking out loud to Satan. Satan is real, is he not? He is as real as any flesh and blood creature that walks or crawls on this earth. He is a real, evil, spiritual being. Jesus talked to him. Jesus said to him audibly, vocally, Be gone, Satan. I don't see any problem with you or I as believers leaning on the power of Christ, looking at Satan and saying, Be gone, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Not today, Satan. I don't know, maybe we should start talking to Satan. Because he is lurking around every corner because he's prowling about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if we talk to him, maybe then we would realize the kind of power and influence that he wields. If we talk to him, 
Maybe we would become more confident in our ability through Christ to reject his temptations. Maybe we ought to start saying, not today, Satan. You're not stealing my joy today. Not today, Satan. You are not enticing me with that old familiar temptation. Not today, Satan. I'm not having it. Be gone. And you know what Scripture says? When we say, be gone, Satan, he will flee. You know why? Because he's scared. He's scared of us because we have the Spirit of God living within us because we have staked out our claim on the winning side, on the victorious side, on Jesus' side. So be gone, Satan. Maybe we ought to add that to our vocabulary. Don't forget, you are on the winning side. Adam may have caved, but Jesus conquered. And because Jesus conquered, you are more than a conqueror through him. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 37. He's scared of you. So why don't you act like it? Why don't you live in the power of the Spirit of God? How do you get the Spirit of God? Through baptism. Baptism into Christ is the way that you are equipped with His Spirit, which gives you the power to fight against the devil. So if you need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb this morning in order to have your sins forgiven and receive that Spirit, which will arm you and equip you to fight against the evil one each and every day, you can come and do that today. Or if you need to resubmit yourself to God, recommit your life to Him, if you need spiritual strength, if you need prayers for any reason, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing?